Hello, and welcome to History Tarts. Bite-sized morsels of history they never taught us in school. I'm Annette Marshall, and this is History Tarts, a podcast where we look at events in history, but not the way it's presented in school. Here's my podcast partner in crime, Graham Cairns. Hey, Annette, did you know that Marie Antoinette could have avoided the French Revolution? Oh, really? Mm, you know that story about how when the people had no bread, she's supposed to have said, let them eat cake? She could have avoided the whole revolution simply by issuing an edict that they distribute bread to the poor. But you know why she didn't do that? Because you can't have your cake and edict too. Jesus. We'll get back to Marie Antoinette later, but today we're going to talk about revolutions because this edition of History Tarts is due for release in July. And that's the home month for two of the most famous revolutions in modern history, those of the United States and of France. Now, I say in modern history because those revolutions were, in fact, the dividing line back when I were a lad between ancient history and modern history, at least as far as the Queensland school curriculum went. And I know this because I studied both ancient and modern history. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the nature of these podcasts, they were my favourite subjects. So over the next... Graham, Graham, are you saying that you like history? I love history. You'd never have guessed, would you? Not at all. Not at all. Anyway, over the next half hour, we're going to look at some of the more famous revolutions and a couple of less famous ones, and even an incident here in Australia that came very close to being a revolution. But again, more on that a little later. I should begin by asking, what is a revolution and what makes that different from an uprising or a protest or a reform? Any suggestions in it? No. (laughs) Good. The usual definition of a revolution is the overthrow or renunciation of one government or ruler and the substitution of another by the governed. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it suggests that for a revolution, it has to be successful. And many revolutions have appeared, well, successful, but then they petered out. There's a really good example I like. The former Chinese leader Zhao Enlai, uh, back in 1972 or thereabouts, was asked about the implications of the French Revolution and said, well, it's too early to say. A lot of people took that to mean that the Chinese took a very long view of history. But of course, what he was really talking about was not the French Revolution of the 1790s, but the student uprisings of the late 1960s. It's pretty fair to say that the 1790s revolution was successful. I mean, there are no more French kings. But the student uprisings and later widespread strikes, they were more a little bump in the road. But let's take a look back at the history of revolutions. One of the first revolutions that we have records of goes back nearly 5,000 years. It was about 2730 BCE, and the priests of Horus, he was one of the leading gods of ancient Egypt, got into a barney with the priests of Set, 
That's another god of Egypt, and they effectively divided Egypt into the upper and lower Nile regions. It's not the last time that religion led to a revolution, I might tell you, but what's interesting about this one is that it only lasted about 40 years when another pharaoh, with the aid of Nubians from Egypt's south, staged a counter-revolution and reunited Egypt. There have been a lot more revolutions and counter-revolutions across the Middle East and China that we've got records for, but let's move forward about mm, 2,000 years to the Mediterranean, when, within just a handful of years, the Greeks and the Romans both overthrew their kings and established new forms of government. In the case of the Romans, it was the Republic with its rule by aristocrats. In Greece, early attempts at democracy, although it is important to note when we talk about democracy, it's just a bit different to ours. For example, Annette, I'm sorry, no franchise for you in ancient Greece. You had to be male, you had to be free, and you had to be adult. So you get two out of three, but I'm sorry, you're a woman. No, no, no slaves, no women, no foreigners. Uh, In fact, there was about a third of all adults had the franchise. So that's ancient Greek democracy. We'll get to them in a minute. But first, let's look at the Romans. The overthrow of the Roman monarchy was an event in ancient Rome that took place, well, between the 6th and 5th centuries BC. There was a political revolution which replaced the then existing Roman monarchy under Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Proud, and it replaced him with a republic. The official story goes something like this. There's a dynastic struggle in which the king's second son, Sextus Tarquinius, rapes a noblewoman, Lucretia. Lucretia kills herself after telling some Roman noblemen, led by Lucius Junius Brutus, who rise up with the support of the Roman aristocracy and the people to expel the king and his family and to create a republic. The Roman army, supporting Brutus, forces the king into exile. Despite a number of attempts by Tarquin the Proud to reinstate the monarchy, the Roman people are successful in establishing a republic and thereafter electing two consuls annually to rule the city. Now, this is all a very wonderful story, but it's almost certainly not true, or at least it's almost certainly fictionalised. I mean, it's a good yarn. You've got a rapacious, evil overlord being usurped by fine, upstanding, morally superior Roman aristocrats who coincidentally give themselves the power that the aforementioned evil, rapacious overlord had. But I guess it's always been a case that the victors get to write the histories. It's obvious to me, Graham, that this is a little bit of fiction because even in the modern world, where women are given more rights, there is no way that the sexual assault of one woman would create such an uprising and upheaval. Well, I mean, she was, after all, related to one of the aristocrats. But even so, I suspect you're right. This, this, this does seem a remarkably fortuitous trigger. Well, I mean, not fortuitous, obviously, for Lucretia, I would think. But... It it does seem too good to be true, and almost certainly is. In any case, the revolution stood until the first century BC, when there were a series of civil wars which ended with the murder of Julius Caesar and the establishment of the Roman Empire under Augustus. Of course, there's a great deal more that we could talk about with the Romans, but I mean, there are history professors who've made entire careers out of discussing the minutest details of Roman history, the, the colour of threads in the dresses of the aristocratic women. 
And we're already 20% into this podcast, so we're going to have to move on. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. even move continents now. Let's head across to China. I've recently been listening to a series of podcasts. Like you, I listen to a lot of podcasts, then, Ed. But one of the ones that I have been listening to is a series on great military battles of history. And I, I have to say, I'm almost ashamed to say how little Chinese history I know. I mean, I knew the broad strokes. But I didn't know, for example, about the Rebellion of the Three Guards. That was around 1000 BCE. That set up the Fengjian system, a a decentralized confederation. And that made possible a single son of heaven to rule over the whole vast part of Asia. And I didn't know about the rebellions against the Qin dynasty in the second century BCE, which led to hand control of China. That lasted about 450 years, by the way, and is considered by many to be the golden age of China, at least prior to the communist revolution of the 20th century. But in the middle of the Han reign, there was this short-lived Xin dynasty, uh, Xin meaning new, and that was overthrown by the delightfully named Red Eyebrow Rebels. Now, you have a penchant for colouring your hair, Annette, but you don't I- normally colour your eyebrows. No. I have once asked my hairdresser if she would dye my eyebrows, and she adamantly refused saying that I would look way too silly. Yep, well, you might look like a demon if you had red eyebrows, and that, in fact, is why they had their eyebrows red. They wanted to appear as demons and frighten their enemies. Now, it seems like it worked, at least for a while, until an opposing army also painted their eyebrows red, creating mass confusion on the battlefield. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, the, the red eyebrows eventually regrouped and staged a second, more successful revolt, which overthrew the Xin, or, as I say, new dynasty, and put a Han emperor back on the throne. Well, sort of. Uh, There was a lot of intrigue and appointing of first one Han Emperor and then another Han Emperor until eventually the eastern branch of the family said, Oi! Enough! And promptly marched in and took over for another couple of centuries. So we're going to leave China there for about 1700 years or so and look at some more modern revolutions involving Europeans. There were scads and scads of revolution in Europe in the 1700s and 1800s, but they were actually preceded by the English civil wars of the 1600s. Those are three civil wars fought between Charles I and Parliament between 1642 and 1651. Part of a a wider conflict involving Wales and Scotland and Ireland. These are known as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. The human cost pretty high, up to 200,000 people lost their lives. That's that's almost 5% of the population of Britain at the time, uh, as great a loss proportionally as during the First World War. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I mean, most of us have heard of the English Civil Wars. I mean, we know that there was a king was executed and all that, but I must admit, until I started researching this, I had no idea that nearly 5% of the population died during those wars. The cause is really quite complex and multi-layered, but at the centre, disagreements about religion, once again, and over the king's use of power and his economic policies. In 1649, the victorious parliamentarians sentenced Charles I to death. His execution was the only period of Republican rule in British history. Uh, Oliver Cromwell ruled over as Lord Protector of the Realm. This period is known as the Interregnum, and it lasted for, well, 11 years until 1660, when Charles's son, Charles II, was restored to the throne. 
Many castles were besieged during the wars, and that resulted in severe damage. Others were deliberately damaged rather than destroyed. It's called slighted after the fighting, and many castles and the ruinous state of them can be traced back to that. When my wife and I went over to visit our son, who was doing the traditional Aussie thing and working as a barman in England, uh, we went over there and we went to castle after castle after castle that had been slighted. That is, the keep had been half knocked down or walls had been smashed down, etc. The idea was that in a battle, the losing side would have their castle slighted, damaged beyond use as a siege place of war, whatever. Uh, they could continue to live there, but it couldn't be used to fight a, a battle from anymore. But yeah, so that's why so many castles across England have been slighted. Now, the thing about these wars is that Charles believed in the divine right of kings. That is, that monarchs were appointed by God and that he could govern his kingdoms personally, taking advice from a privy council that he appointed. And if they said something he didn't want, he could ignore them. He expected MPs to do as he commanded. But Parliament had already developed a role in government with powers to raise taxes and to make laws and to allocate money for the king's use. So Charles could do what he liked with the money that they gave him, but they could tell him how much money he could have. It was his arbitrary use of power that was a source of anger and frustration for MPs and for others who wanted a more inclusive government. Matters of politics at the time, deeply ingrained with religion. The Church of England was Protestant, but there were a number of non-conformist sects, including the Puritans and the Presbyterians, who believed that worship should be plain and congregational. They didn't like the big high church of Catholicism, and they didn't like the fact that the Church of England high church really does resemble Catholicism in a lot of ways. And, and many believed that that old faith was dangerous. People were afraid that the king was going to bring back popery and subjugation to Rome. And so the Puritans in particular uh, wanted him gone. And he married a Catholic princess, Henrietta Maria of France. He promoted the high church in the Church of England. Eventually, all of this led to the war, the war which the Puritans won, and to the execution of a king. As I mentioned, about a decade later, a new king was appointed. But here's the thing. His powers were severely limited, and the parliament became the supreme governing body of Britain. That, it could be argued, led in part to the more widespread revolutions of the 18th century, including the French and American revolutions. Let's look at the French Revolution. In the case of the French, society had undergone this epic transformation from feudal, aristocratic and religious privileges. They all evaporated under what's been described as a sustained assault from liberal political groups, that's smaller liberal political groups, and the masses on the streets. Old ideas about hierarchy and tradition succumbed to the new enlightenment principles of citizenship and inalienable rights. The French Revolution itself began in 1789 with the, sorry, the convocation of the Estates General in May and the assault on the Bastille in July, which is why, by the way, July 14th is Bastille Day and France's National Day. Uh, there was the passage of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen in August, and then an epic march on Versailles that forced the royal court back to Paris in October. The next few years dominated 
by tensions between the various liberal assemblies and the conservative monarchy, who, of course, didn't want those major reforms, a republic was proclaimed in September 1792 and King Louis XIV was executed the next year. Oh, uh, actually, it was Louis XIV or Louis XVI? Anyway, Louis got his head chopped off. Uh, and that Marie Antoinette quip about let them eat cake, she never actually said it. The first recorded use of that sledge actually predates her birth and was attributed to another aristocrat. But poor young Marie copped the blame. Uh, popular sentiment toward the revolution was pretty high. Unfortunately, that popular sentiment significantly radicalised the revolution, culminating in the Reign of Terror from 1793-1794. Tens of thousands of people were killed in the Reign of Terror. After the fall of Robespierre and the Jacobins, the Directory assumed control of the French state until about 1795. They held power until 1799, when the Consulate replaced it under Napoleon Bonaparte. Then you had this growth of republics and liberal democracies, the spread of secularism, the development of modern ideologies, the invention of total war. They can all be credited with the, their birth at the French Revolution. It's no coincidence that the other great revolution of the 18th century, the American Revolution, was sparked by many of those same tensions. You got the 13 colonies in North America joining together to break free from the British Empire and combining to become the United States of America. They first rejected the authority of the British Parliament to govern them from overseas without representation, hence the no representation without, no taxation without representation will toss your tea in the uh, Boston Harbour. By 1774, each colony had established a provincial congress or an equivalent government institution. They formed these individual self-governing states. The British responded, of course, by sending combat troops to re-establish direct rule. Uh, the representatives uh, formed the Second Continental Congress. The new states joined together, defending their self-governance and to manage the inevitable armed conflict against the British. That was the American Revolutionary War. Ultimately, the states collectively determined that the British monarchy could no longer legitimately claim their allegiance due to acts of tyranny. They severed ties in July 1776 when they issued the Declaration of Independence that rejected the monarchy on behalf of their new nation. And then the war ended with an American victory in 1781, followed by the formal British abandonment of any claims to the United States with the Treaty of Paris in 1783. From our perspective here in Australia, by the way, what's really important about this is that you'll bear in mind that this is about the time that a European settlement began in Australia. Why? Because having lost the American colonies, Britain could no longer send their convicts to those colonies, they had to find somewhere else to send them. Where else can we send convicts? Hmm, the great what South Land, Terra Nullius, where there is nobody there. Well, apart from the people who are already there, but we won't talk about them. And so that's one of the reasons why Australia became a penal colony, because the POMs could no longer send their criminals to the Americans. They had to send them here instead. Graham, do you know my favourite bit out of the American Revolution? Mm hmm was that it brought me Hamilton, the musical. You know... I, I love that musical. I have a shameful admission to make. Despite the fact that it has been available on Disney Plus for more than a year, I still haven't watched it. Yeah. What? Your job this weekend, Graham, is to, to sit down Hamilton. with Shirley and watch that movie. All right. I shall watch Hamilton and let you know. Anyway... 
Let's take a look at our own attempt at revolution, shall we? The Eureka Stockade. We Now, much of this material, I've got to tell you, has come from the National Museum. Uh, Shirley and I were in Ballarat earlier this year, and I was fascinated by the history of the Eureka Stockade. Sorry, Ballarat, that's where Sovereign Hill is, isn't it? That's exactly where Sovereign Hill is, yes. I went to Sovereign Hill when I was a little girl, and I was wearing um, like a, a sloppy Joe kind of thing in tracksuit pants. And I had the the guards, the pretend guards, put me in the, sh- the shackles thing mm-hmm. because I was wearing my undergarments and not a dress. Mm-hmm. And that is the one main thing I remember about Ballarat was being embarrassed that I was apparently in my pajamas and not a real outfit i think that's the reason now graham is that i am so (laughs) anti-pants i like it i like it they didn't put me in the stocks while we were at uh, sovereign hill but i must admit it was fascinating to wander around so yes anybody if you're in australia you get a chance to go to ballarat go to stock uh, go to uh, uh, sovereign hill it is actually really worth a day anyway the history of the eureka stockade November 1854, miners at Ballarat swear allegiance to the Southern Cross flag at Bakery Hill, and they build a stockade at the nearby Eureka diggings. They were disgruntled with the way the colonial government was administering the goldfields. Early on the morning of Sunday 3rd of December 1854, while the stockade was only being lightly guarded, government troops attacked and at least 22 miners and five soldiers were killed. The rebellion of miners at the Eureka stockade is a key event in the development of Australia's political system and its attitude toward democracy and equality. Uh, To use the words of rebel leader Peter Lawler, it is my duty now to swear you in and to take with you the oath to be faithful to the Southern Cross. Now hear me with attention. The man who after this solemn oath does not stand by our standard is a coward at heart. We swear by the Southern Cross to truly stand by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Uh, I should do a bit of background here. It was early 1851, the New South Wales government announced that gold had been discovered near Bathurst. Uh, In June 1851, the Victorian government also reported discoveries of gold. In the 19th century, gold was pretty much a catalyst for great change. You could dig your own fortune And that attracted people from across the country and from around the world. Between 1851 and 1860, so we're talking nine years here, Victoria's population increased from 76,000 to 540,000. That's a fairly massive influx of people, a serious challenge for the government, limited finances to provide services, the colonial budgets in deficit, so to raise funds and to discourage the flood of people from moving to the diggings, the New South Wales Governor Charles Fitzroy and Lieutenant Governor Charles Latrobe of Victoria imposed a 30 shilling a month licence fee on miners. Now, that's, that's about $300 a month in today's dollars for blokes who were living in tents and already paying out everything they had just to get food. So when the easily obtainable surface gold began to run out in 1852, you can imagine the licence fee became something of a point of contention. In 1852, 35,000 miners on the Victorian goldfields are producing about five ounces of gold a head, which is not bad. 
But by 1854, the population had almost tripled. The production of gold had dropped to an average of 1.5 ounces per head, and they're still faced with the same $300 a month fee, or 30 shillings. From 1853, miners began to gather at these monster meetings to voice their concerns about the licensing system. They alleged that police were extorting money, accepting bribes, and imprisoning people without due process. Delegations presented their concerns to Governor Latrobe, and he was, well, not very receptive, I might tell you. Uh, many of the miners were, well, they were politically engaged. They'd participated in the Chartist movement for political reform in Britain in the 1830s and 1840s, winching palms maybe, but they had a point. Others had been involved in the anti-authoritarian revolutions that spread across Europe, I mentioned in the 1840s. The situation on the goldfields was tense. They lived in tents, but the situation was also tense. Uh, they held license hunts, that is, the police did, to track down miners who didn't pay their fees. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. They would hold these license hunts, and if you did not have your license on you, you could be jailed and forced to pay a fee just to go back to your tent to get your license that you could then present. So you wouldn't get your money back. No. And the thing is, the more they arrested, the more the police got paid. And so that was, well, an encouragement to them to be just a little heavy handed. On October 6th, 1854, a Scottish miner was killed in an altercation in a hotel. The proprietor was accused of killing him. Court of inquiry was held and he was quickly exonerated. Uh, now, one of the court members, John Dews, was a police magistrate who was known to have taken bribes from the publican. So, on the 17th of October, there's about 5,000 people gathered to discuss the case. They decide to appeal against the decision. After the dispersal of the crowd, a small group decided to set fire to the Eureka Hotel. Uh, they were arrested by police. The situation became even more tense. Over the next week, the miners met, elected delegates... In November, they approached the new Victorian governor, Charles Hotham, and demanded the release of the men who'd burned down Bentley's Eureka Hotel. Governor Hotham took offence to having demands made of him and dismissed those grievances and sent 150 British soldiers and the 40th Regiment of Foot to Ballarat to reinforce the police and soldiers who were already stationed there, further escalating things. Sensing a change in the government's approach, the miners held another meeting at Bakery Hill and created the newly created Eureka flag, which they unfurled. Uh, now, that Southern Cross flag has become a symbol of the labour movement in Australia ever since. Uh, police were unsettled by the hostility, and so they decided a new licence hunt is going to be in order. That's not going to ratchet things up at all, is it? No! No, no. <laughs> well, as they move through the camp, the miners decide, nope, they've had enough. So they gathered and they marched to Bakery Hill, and it's there that Irish miner Peter Lawler became the leader of the protest, telling the miners to swear by the Southern Cross to truly stand by each other and defend our rights, as you heard a little earlier. Now, the miners gathered timber from nearby mine shafts, built a protective stockade. Over the next couple of days, men and women, they're in and around that stockade, performing military drills in preparation for possible conflict, uh, which was a bit much for the director of the... Ballarat Goldfields, Robert Reed, he was the commissioner at the time, and called for the police and army to destroy the stockade on Sunday the 3rd of December at first light. So 300 mounted and foot troopers and police attacked the stockade. The assault's over in about 15 minutes. It wasn't a particularly um, well-defended stockade. You've got 22 miners, including one woman, dead. Uh, also, by the way, five soldiers have lost their lives. 
police arrested and detained 113 of the miners. Uh, eventually, 13 of them taken to Melbourne to stand trial. Governor Hotham calls a goldfield commission of inquiry in December of 1854. Now, the citizens of Victoria were opposed to the government actions at Ballarat, and one by one, those 13 leaders of the rebellion were tried by jury and released. And then in March 1855, the Commission of Inquiry released its recommendations and the licence fee was removed, replaced by an export duty and a £1 per year miners' right. So not 30 shillings per month, but £1 or 20 shillings per year. Oh, and also half of the police on the goldfield were fined. Twelve new members added to the Victorian Legislative Council, four of those appointed by the Queen, and eight elected by the people who held a miners' right. And one of those elected, Peter Lawler. So this is where things get a little, you know, call it cynical, if you like. I mentioned this could have led to a revolt rather than just a skirmish. But the authorities took what was probably a pretty sensible approach now. They gave them a seat at the table. The net result was that the grumbling died down. But the door to more democratic input had been shoved wide open. In the words of Doc Evatt, who was a former leader of the Labor Party and a High Court judge, Australian democracy was born at Eureka. So while the rebellion itself was short-lived, the results were much longer lasting. And so ends our look at revolutions. And we haven't even looked at the Industrial Revolution or the Media Revolution or the Russian and Chinese Communist Revolutions. Perhaps we'll revisit them some other time, particularly in the wake of the changes in both those countries a century on from their revolts. But in the meantime, as Annette might say, my dad jokes remain revolting, including this one. How did Louis XIV feel after building the Palace of Versailles? He was Baroque. Oh, gee. <laughs> All right, Annette, what are we doing next time? Next episode, we are going to be talking about eponyms. Eponyms, that's where names become... Well, actually, why don't we wait till the next episode to find out? Hmm, shall we? Check us out at historytarts.com or your favourite podcast platform.